viewers are watching as well. We always have a good turnout online. Welcome to you as well. Um, we um, are going to have a 90-minute program today. Originally, we um, had hoped to have a keynote speaker, but unfortunately, we couldn't. That person was not available, and we had to. Uh, uh, we decided to go ahead with the panel, and that's actually the real meat and the better part of this uh, um, uh, presentation, anyway, because we got some real pros who are going to be up here in a second joining me. Um, a couple of administrative things. First, again, as always, uh, please um, silence your phones. Um, if there's any kind of security incident, basically follow me. We have emergency exits back here that go down into the alley, and then you can rally back. We will rally back at National Geographic, uh, one block down on M Street, uh, or out front if, if that's appropriate. Um, and as I said, we will end the program at 4 p.m. here today, so, just, uh, so, so that's clear. Um, let me thank... Uh, the uh, two foundations that made this work possible. First, the Smith Richardson Foundation, a big supporter of CSAS uh, across a bunch of programs. We've done uh, projects with them before and delighted that they were interested in this project and thanks, thanks to Smith Richardson. Um, also, Alcoa Foundation was also a supporter of this um, effort and we really appreciate their support as well. Um, there is a cast of thousands to thank uh, here. Um, I'm going to refer you to the report itself. In the back, we have a full, well, we have a, an acknowledgments in the front and a list of all the people who participated in this effort, both obviously people here at CSIS, a lot of my colleagues, and let me actually single out two people in particular who are on the cover of the report but don't always get enough credit. Um, Pearl Risberg and uh, Dylan uh, Gerstel are my two uh, research assistants who really did most of the heavy lifting in this project, um, putting it all together, writing, drafting most of the report, and I really appreciate that. Two of my other colleagues um, who uh, are also on the cover, Bill Reinch and Scott Kennedy, you're going to meet in a second, um, so I'll thank them then. Uh, but thanks also to all of the outside experts. There are a lot of China hands and trade hands and others who participated in our simulations. They're all listed in the report, uh, but I really appreciate everybody's help. And I think everybody had fun, actually, with the simulation, so I'm glad it, it worked out. Um, okay. So, as I said, we have a report, about a 70-page report. If you don't need that uh, as a soporific, uh, we have a a Cliff Notes version as well, uh, a brief which is also online, uh, it's an eight page I think uh, version of this. And then the new innovation we have is this game. When you came in, I don't know if you had time to play it, but we're, we've, we have uh, turned Beyond the Brink into a game, uh, fairly simple game, but uh, you can choose whether you're United States and China and you can make certain choices about what uh, tools of economic statecraft you use in a negotiation and certain outcomes uh, will appear and you can see uh, there are I think 32 or more different permutations of possibilities and uh, so we thought that would be a fun a new thing. That's going to be online as well if it isn't already. Um, so uh, enjoy that. Okay, that is plenty of sort of throat clearing here. So. We were actually approached by Smith Richardson uh, in the fall of 2017, so almost two years ago, uh, asking us if we would be interested in using game theory and bargaining theory to apply to a U.S.-China trade war. And our first reaction was, are you kidding? Uh, we're about to go into a, a real trade war. By then, that was pretty clear in the fall of 2017. And why would you want to do a sort of theoretical thing? And um, we were then persuaded that actually this would be quite an interesting exercise because um, there hasn't been a lot of study of how escalation 
uh, and de-escalation happen in, in economic and trade conflict and certainly as applied to China. And so we uh, had an opportunity to learn a lot about game theory and bargaining theory, uh, escalation dominance you know, concept in, in nuclear deterrent theory. Um, and it turned out that this was quite a useful exercise in helping, you know, it had predictive power, um, it gave us scenarios of how conflict can escalate or de-escalate, and an understanding of strategic logic on the other side. Um, and we're going to hopefully explore some of that in the panel here as some of the, my colleagues um, learn some things, I think, in the simulations about how to think about the other side's perspective. Um, and ultimately, this all helps to um, make for better U.S. Uh, strategy and policy, and that's what you know, CSIS is all about. So I think I have somewhere here. Do I have? Oh, there we go. All right, the clicker. So um, I'm hoping this is going to work. So I think most people know, especially at a security-focused think tank about game theory, which was developed you know, at the end of World War II um, and is normally applied to, uh, to security and military affairs and gaming uh, out in you know, a nuclear warfare and so forth. Um, one of the fathers of this um, uh, area of study was Thomas Schelling, who wrote a, a famous book in, in uh, 1960 called Strategy of Con The Strategy of Conflict, in which he uh, explained that, that game theory is concerned with situations that are involve strategy, not skill or uh, chance, like the game uh, that you're going to play out there, um, which, um, you know, in which the, the course of action for each side depends on what they expect the other side to do. So that's uh, the important sort of central insight of, of um, game theory. Um, and the other person who inspired a lot of this work and, and our work in this project uh, was Herman Kahn, who wrote a book on escalation uh, in 1965, um, in which he, as you can see in this quote, you know, said that there's likely to be a competition in risk taking and, and um, or at least resolve. And that's a key part of, uh, of this field and also of what we uh, saw as we, um, as we played out this game. Uh, incidentally, Herman Kahn was uh, allegedly the model for Dr. Strangelove, uh, the movie in the, in the mid-90s, uh, so um, that's another reason to uh, read his works, because um, he was all about escalation ladders and how to survive a nuclear war. Um, so, um, so basically, we used game theory and bargaining theory to study escalation dynamics in an economic conflict um, and you know, applied this, uh, all of this to the US-China uh, situation. So um, I'm not going to, if you're really into the models, we've got a whole chapter on our model and modeling and so forth. And we had a lot of help on that from um, some real pros, so we appreciate that. Um, but I'm just going to do a sort of simplified version of this. So essentially, the way to think about this is that you have an economic relationship with a division of benefits. It doesn't matter if this is 50-50, we're just doing this for simple uh, simplification. But basically, there's a country A and a country B, and, um, and uh, this is the, the, the status quo and, um, and the pie of potential benefits in the, in the relationship. Uh, so the, what we are looking at here in this, in this uh, project is escalation, and the costs of escalation are, are shown here by a shrinkage of the pie, because one way or another, uh, there's going to be a cost to escalation that is going to be 
uh, not necessarily evenly distributed like this, but uh, to give you a sense that there is a, a pie that um, when one side escalates in a trade war, uh, you know, there's a, there's a cost to uh, at least one side, if not both, and that causes the circle to shrink. Um, and so the question is, why would you escalate? And the, the simplistic, again, oversimplified uh, answer to that is you um, estimate that you believe that your share of the circle, if you escalate and get into a negotiation, will get bigger than uh, your original share, um, even if the overall pie has shrunk. Um, so in tariffs, in the, in the case of tariffs, um, we know that they are going to make economic exchange more expensive and the circle is going to shrink, um, but we think it's going to force China to change in some way, um, and so we, we pursue um, uh, this, this approach of escalating. Um, and um, of course, this decision to whether to escalate or not is a function of, I didn't realize that was on there, in particular of your own pain tolerance and your perception of the other side's resolve and their pain tolerance. That's absolutely critical to you know, whether you decide to escalate. And at the end of the day, you know, those, the side that has the, mo the higher risk tolerance or the perception that its risk tolerance is higher than the other side is more likely to escalate. Um, and um, so that's what you're seeing in a way in the, in the, um, in the US-China uh, dynamic uh, now. Um, and so we built around this, again, oversimplified um, explanation. We built a model of escalation and we tested it um, via two simulations. But before I talk about the simulations, which is what a lot of us are going to talk about up here, um, we, we first had to review economic statecraft, which is basically the use of economic tools to, to uh, get another uh, trading partner to do something you want them to do, or not to do something you don't want them to do. Um, and we broadly, uh, I mean, we read a lot of the literature about this, but we broadly created our own categorization of the tools of economic statecraft into broadly these three groups. And starting with the middle one, we sort of grouped the collection of outbound focused uh, economic actions, which are ones that directly influence trade or capital flows to pressure or incentivize um, the target. Um, and we have it as a sort of, it's not meant to be a bullseye really, but more uh, the central uh, uh, toolkit is, is the, is the uh, tools that are consistent with, with international law. So these are, um, these are things like WTO cases or sanctioned WTO remedies like dumping or anti, um, countervailing duty or anti-dumping uh, duties. Um, is, is the sort of central uh, set of tools. Uh, the next ring is uh, tools that are sanctioned by, uh, by national law, but not necessarily by international law either because there isn't international law or not much, like on investment restrictions, for example, um, or, uh, or delisting of uh, the other side's companies from your, uh, from your markets. Um, but, uh, or sanctions or other things that are, are subject to national law but not necessarily uh, to international law um, is the sort of next ring. And then the outer ring is extra legal or things that are not, um, uh, are not uh, necessarily consistent with even national law, if not international law, things like commercial espionage, um, regulatory process abuse, um, propaganda, uh, other tools that, that can help influence um, your, uh, your counterpart. 
So that's the sort of central toolkit, and those are all spelled out in more detail and explanation in the report. Um, and then we also uh, considered uh, coalition building efforts. That's, you know, whether it's plurilateral trade agreements or summits or statements of resolve or mutual uh, resolve on, on issues. Um, and then uh, domestic interventions is, uh, is uh, are economic tools taken to uh, bolster your uh, economic position at home one way or another. So that could include uh, subsidies, uh, farm aid, um, uh, general fiscal stimulus, um, targeted R&D, uh, various uh, efforts uh, at the domestic level. So that was the first thing we did was to sort of look through that and, and catalog uh, these, these tools. And again, there's much more explanation of this in the report. Okay, then we held uh, simulations. We had two simulations, all-day simulations, uh, one on March 5th and the second on May, uh, May 6th. Um, here at CSIS headquarters. Um, we've got a, about a dozen former um, trade negotiators or, and or uh, China hands together, and we played two teams, uh, a U.S. team and a China team, and that was a, um, a, a conscious decision to sort of simplify this model, and there were a lot of simplifications we had to make that are explained, and we were honest about the limitations of that, but we, um, we uh, wanted to isolate some of the, uh, the particular dynamics in this, um, in this uh, kind of negotiation, and so we, we had uh, just the two teams, and then we had a control that played the rest of the world, um, which was made up basically of me and my team. Um, and Scott Miller, by the way, another colleague who was very helpful in the control room and uh, playing Europe and Japan and others. Um, and uh, we spent a whole day together uh, twice uh, with different uh, scenarios, uh, the both set in the near future. So we had uh, the first game was set in 2025 and the Kamala Harris administration had just been, she had just been reelected president of the United States. and. Um, uh, Xi Jinping's successor, Hu Chunhua, was president of China, um, and we played a game that centered around intellectual property violations um, and, and uh, tactics and tools around that. Um, and then the second simulation, we sat a little closer to the future in 2021, and we had um, President Nikki Haley, um, and um, on the presumption that a strange set of circumstances uh, occurred, and, and uh, uh, Nikki Haley was elected president, um, and Xi Jinping was still president uh, of China, but um, we wanted to control uh, some of the uh, aspects of this. Anyway, you can read all about that in the report, and you may hear some more from colleagues here in a, in a second. And the outcome in both games was stalemate. Um, in neither side did we reach an agreement. We had times when the two teams could talk to each other, times when they um, got together and negotiated with each other, and in both cases they ended in stalemate, and we can, we're going to talk more about that because everybody here was involved in the simulations. Um, very quickly, and I should move on. So you can read the report. Um, essentially, project findings, first of all, in terms of whether theory was useful here, again, as I say, it did the simulations certainly confirm the model's uh, main causal mechanism that a country with high appetite for risk um, or one that underestimates the other side's willingness to endure pain is going to tend to launch an escalatory spiral. And, you know, we've seen some of that in the real world. Um, obviously, uh, this was not a perfect 
um, approach to this issue, and it certainly we had to simplify a lot of things. And I would say, you know, the application of this to economics is a little different from applying to a, uh, you know, kinetic warfare. Um, for one thing, you have, for example, you have a private sector, a market that, that responds in ways that aren't necessarily predictable, um, which in a, in a more controlled um, sort of kinetic situation tends to not be um, as much uh, a, a kind of core dynamic. Um, and you, know, you have a different role for third parties and so forth. So there were some differences, but we found it useful. Um, and so we ended up with, uh, with a number of, of kind of substantive findings, the first of which, and probably arguably the most important of which, is uh, that dual credibility is, um, is uh, critical here. And when I say dual, I mean that you have to both be willing in a, one of these negotiations to show resolve um, and determination to take pain um, and have credibility about your, your ability and willingness to do that. Um, but you also have to have credibility in being willing to compromise and to, to come to a negotiated outcome and to stick to uh, those, uh, those outcomes in good faith. And uh, that may uh, be, and again, you can read more about it in the report, but that is, I think, we think, you know, pretty relevant in the, in the real world uh, for reasons we can talk about in a second. Okay, coalition building is, is critical. Of, a lot of talk about that on the U.S. side of the story that we have to work with allies and so forth, but the interesting thing that we saw in our simulations was that China, the China team was doing a lot of that, a lot of instinctive trying to reach out. They don't have allies, but they have, or not many, uh, but they have um, uh, Belt and Road, for example, and were uh, leaning on those sorts of uh, techniques, which we thought was important in terms of thinking about how the U.S. should approach this. Um, we also found that you know, well-targeted tools vis-a-vis uh, -vis China can work, and uh, for example, certain tactics like um, you, putting Chinese companies on an entity list uh, had more impact than broad-based tariffs. Um, going after uh, state-owned enterprise issues and subsidies had more impact than going after intellectual property, and again, we can talk more about that. Um, we found, not surprisingly, China prefers informal tools uh, like uh, in the simulations, uh, use of um, uh, administrative reviews of agricultural imports when they arrived at ports, that was a, a tool uh, used, putting companies on China's, you know, undesirable, uh, unreliable list. Um, and this is partly the nature of the Chinese system, partly because China doesn't want to be seen internationally as, um, as uh, a bad actor um, or not, in, or not in, in compliance with international uh, law. Um, we found that in both, both sides uh, had an impulse to uh, intervene more in the economy in these, um, in these uh, battles, the U.S. Um, putting uh, in place you know, agricultural subsidies or R&D or broad stimulus or banning uh, certain activities in the private sector. That was, um, again, a real-world phenomenon, is a real-world phenomenon, but it's something we found in our simulations. Um, and then, again, maybe the most important thing is that we found that at least partial decoupling is an inevitable consequence of escalation. Um, at some point in escalation, uh, we found uh, that there was an erosion of trust and that um, the private sector, at least if not the public sector, was making decisions that uh, were in fact um, uh, 
pulling uh, the two economies apart. Not completely, but there were, there were moves in, in both cases. Again, pretty uh, uh, relevant to the, to the real world. Um, and I think what I'll do just really quickly, and just I'll flash them up here because they all are in a way derivative of this and we're gonna talk more about this. But um, in terms of US policy recommendations, obviously you need to have that dual credibility and establish that. You need to set clear goals. Um, assess costs and benefits, costs of, of, of engaging in escalation um, and benefits thereof, but also sort of broadly, more broadly speaking, what are the costs and benefits of economic engagement with China? Um, and then, of course, assessment of the tactics and tools and, and their costs and benefits. Um, uh, enhanced decision-making processes essentially gets down to you need to have uh, coordinated approaches with White House uh, direction and we propose you know, a, a, a czar in, in the White House to oversee these processes. Um, building multilateral coalitions is, again, an, it's something a lot of people are talking about, but it's a, a clear finding of, of, of our report, of our study. Um, and then investing in our economic strength at home was also something that came out of the games and out of the model. And you know, we, again, think that's pretty relevant to uh, to the real world. Again, I'm going to, I'm sort of skipping through this because I've spent too much time up here and I want to get uh, my colleagues uh, up here. So um, with that, I would encourage you to, you have to read the whole report if you're not into modeling, but, uh, but at least read the, uh, the, um, the introductory parts and the, and the uh, findings and recommendations and you'll get much more uh, detail and information on this. So with that, let me uh, bring my colleagues up here and we'll have a panel discussion. So well organized. I'm in the center. Sorry, I didn't have time to script where everybody sat because I was. You did. You just didn't tell us. There we go. Okay. So um, I think all four of these people are well known to uh, everybody in this audience. But I'll just quickly um, introduce uh, colleagues, all colleagues of, of mine. Uh, terrifically um, uh, thrilled to have uh, these folks up here who are all. Uh, very involved in this project, and I really thank you all um, for, for, for all the time and effort and insight you gave uh, to this project. But to my immediate left is Claire Reed, who's senior counsel at Arnold and Porter. Uh, I think most people know. She's also a senior associate in the trustee chair in China studies here, um, uh, Scott Kennedy's chair, uh, and uh, was, as, as people know, I think, assistant USTR um, in the Obama administration um, for China and Mongolia and other exciting places, um, I believe. Yes. Um, and very involved, longtime um, expert in China and in trade negotiations, so delighted to have Claire with us. Bill Reinch, well known to everyone, senior advisor and Scholl chair in international business here at CSAS. He does our trade work, he's one of our trade guys. Um, and uh, again, a familiar familiar face, a former undersecretary of commerce and is a long time expert in, in trade. And uh, as you'll see, um, a now Chinese trade negotiator. He insisted on playing on the China team and I think uh, got something useful out of that. Stephanie Siegel is senior fellow in my program, the Simon Chair um, in Political Economy. Uh, Stephanie was uh, 15 years at Treasury and the IMF and uh, was also, she was in control, so she was not a 
player in the teams, but she uh, helped us out in control and uh, playing the games. Um, and uh, delighted to have Stephanie here too. And then Scott Kennedy, who is our trustee chair in um, Chinese business and economics. It's a new chair, so I have to read, uh, trustee, read it out. Trustee chair. Trustee of the trustee chair, right. Um, and uh, again, I think well known to everybody here as a, as a, um, a, a China scholar. And in fact, I'm going to start with Scott because I want to start with the scholar stuff, then we'll get to the real world. By the way, don't worry, we are going to talk about the real trade war and uh, where it's headed and what people think about all that. But, uh, but let me just have one question uh, for Scott, as the academic in the group here who's done, uh, I mean, actually read Schelling and Kahn and, uh, and others. Um, you know, Scott, what, uh, from your perspective, is the usefulness of applying game theory? And this is not a leading question. If you think it's not relevant here, uh, I want, we want to hear that, but, but why is it or how could it be helpful in, in thinking about uh, uh, an economic conflict generally and a conflict uh, between the U.S. and China or, or not? Sure. Um, well, thank you, Matt, and congratulations to you and your team for uh, uh, doing a tremendous job with this r report. And it was uh, uh, enlightening and fun uh, and informative to participate uh, in, in the background and in the simulations uh, that, you, that you had. Um, I, th I think the, the use of game theory and, 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 uh, is extremely helpful. Uh, I'll point, I'll, at the end I'll say, I'll, I'll say a couple things about maybe some of the weaknesses or some of the oddities of things that came out that were maybe inconsistent with the theory or just sort of raised questions. But but largely just want to defend the idea of doing this. And I think the first thing um, which, which is important for people to understand is, is that this is a strategic interaction. What we are watching are uh, two sides uh, acting based on their judgment of the other party. Uh, and I think we forget that. We're, we're particularly forgetting that right now because we're kind of thinking unilaterally, will Trump or won't Trump do something? But really, it's about both sides making choices based on, on not just their own preferences, but their estimation of what the other side will do given what their choices are. And I think that is critical, that this isn't just unilateral decision making on either side, that there is this interaction, which is, which is why this is so important and, and why it's difficult to uh, understand what's going on. I, I think the, the other thing, um, that, that comes out of this that, that's extremely useful is in the, per, in the need to demonstrate uh, your ability to stay in this longer than the other side. Uh, as Schelling has said, you have to show that in some ways you're not rational. That you're, uh, and so this is what I call Trump's crazy uncle strategy. That he'd be willing to absorb far more costs than you would expect an American politician facing interest groups and voters would be able to do. And of course, the Chinese have the ability to demonstrate this by the fact that they don't have those type of, of uh, political systems in place with elections where you have to be accountable to voters. Uh, and Xi Jinping and the Chinese have a record of engaging in other types of, of coercion. So both sides have done a lot to show that they can withstand uh, and, and live in this uh, situation. Um, in, in addition to that, I, I think what is interesting is, and I think surprising from both sides, 
is that the other side actually could withstand this for so long and that we're still here uh, and, and there's not been a resolution yet, though, though stay tuned, of course, uh, that Trump hasn't listened to interest groups, right? And that the Chinese uh, haven't given in to what could have been an easy solution uh, because they see the cost is so high because they see this as a challenge to their system. Um, Things that, that, that jump out that, I, that will always be a challenge for game theory and, and any theoretical exercise is the, the theory does a great job of explaining, you know, 85%. And then what happens with that last 15%? It's all the questions that people ask you and all the details, which you, you can never get to with a theory, but you, this gets us a lot of the way. A couple things that st uh, stand out that are challenges uh, from the theory is, is that um, you know, it, it, this is easier to do and map out theoretically when you know both sides' preferences and that those preferences are consistent and that they've communicated them to the other side. Honestly, I'm not sure I know that either side has clear, consistent preferences and that they've communicated them and that internally they stay the same the whole time. Um, I think we have a debate about the globalists and the hawks and the others inside our inside the U.S. government, and I think we sometimes have the same conversation. So, so that's a that's that one thing. How does how do how does theory apply in a situation where it's hard to identify consistent preferences? Uh, the the other one is um, about the tools used, uh, and then I'll, I'll stop here. Uh, I. I I'm, the, the theory says you should use all of these kinds of tools, right? But why, did the, why has the U.S. not used coalition building more? It, it just boggles the mind. It seems like an obvious thing, but it's not. Instead, the U.S. has used a lot of domestic intervention, at least vis-a-vis -vis agriculture. Conversely, why has the Chinese done the opposite? Why have they used coalition building but very little domestic intervention. If they don't need domestic support because it's an authoritarian system, but um, then maybe that's the explanation. <clears throat> but it's just surprising that both sides have, have kept uh, tools in their pocket which they otherwise could have deployed. And so uh, maybe that's, the, that's where we get from theory to practice and you've got some practitioners here that are gonna explain when you really fight, why do you really use the tools that you use and don't, and that theory doesn't explain. Okay, great segue into Claire, because you've been at the table and you've used uh, these tools, uh, some of them. You've certainly interacted with the Chinese and tried to understand their perspectives and their strategies and, and um, tactics. Uh, plus, you played in the first simulation of ours and you really got into it. She was, uh, using, she was playing on the Chinese side and, and, uh, and was uh, using all the MOFCOM talking points uh, in presenting. Um, in presenting um, the Chinese perspective, it was great. Uh, so, Claire, you know, what did you take away from the simulations, and, and sort of, if you want to sort of take a stab at why you think uh, the tools were not all used, and and how this was um, relevant to the real world? Well, I actually thought the simulations were um, very helpful in sussing out what the bones of this negotiation are about, and I. And I do think um, that the basic points that you made in your conclusions are very important. Um, I myself, Scott, was not that surprised that it's lasted this long because I felt that 
the United States may have underestimated China's capacity to, to take this. And, and I, I thought that was potentially a mistake in how um, it, it unfolded. Um, but so the, the interesting things about the simulation were in some ways the way they mirrored how negotiations actually flow. The, the piece that we couldn't put into the simulation, though, was a piece that's really important to negotiating with China, in my, in my understanding. And that is, in China, you don't get anything done until you get very high up. It, because only the people at the very top have the flexibility, and then the vision of interest, and then the political power to actually cross all of those bureaucracies and all of the resistors who exist inside the Chinese system. It's not a monolith. Everybody says that it's not. So what we couldn't do was create that, that, that moment where there is a pragmatic high level decision to basically come to the table. Um, and, but it was, it was extremely interesting to, to sort of look at it. I thought, the simulations also accurately reflected the fact that given the, the significant but limited leverage that the United States has, the capacity of the Chinese side to stay in a space where it was only willing to say yes to things that were in their self-interest, right? That there was no need and absolutely no interest in doing anything that would cause them to lose face or make them feel as if they'd been humiliated. And that, in fact, was a constraint and would be a constraint on the Chinese side. Um, and I guess what I would say, you describe the endpoints as stalemate. But what it seemed to me potentially to be another finding, in a sense, from from the simulations was that perhaps given that you can't achieve 100% of your goals, that maybe what you want to do with that information is go back and figure out how it is that you can satisfy so that on the theory that satisficing gets you more than just backing off and lobbing rotten tomatoes at each other. And then you live with the realities of your competition um, in ways that you're you know, already having to do. And let me just say two other things with, to react a little bit to what Scott said. One of them is that um, as a negotiator going into those simulations, you're, or negotiating, you're always thinking about what the other side is doing, what their capabilities are, where their bottom line is, what's stopping them, you know, what your tactics are going to be to get around things that you can anticipate and all of that. So you're constantly, you're never thinking about it from one side. You're constantly balancing where you're coming from with what you think is, is feasible. And then on the coalition question, my guess is that coalitions are both too slow for where the U.S. was, is it? Because this was a great experiment, you know, dislodging China from the inertia of just giving an incremental gift to keep things stable was one of the things that the Trump administration did. So, the coalition idea requires time, and also for this particular administration, requires embracing partnerships when they like to go it alone. 
right? And the other thing I would say is that some of the experience of the United States has been that it's hard to have a coalition where others are actually leading together with you in the world, that the relationships that other countries have with China in some ways are more complex and more dependent, so that there tends to be caution. So you could have, though, coalitions that operate in other areas. You don't have to have a coalition that's all fighting with China about you know, this particular set of issues. You can create coalitions. And I would say, for example, that the United States is trying to do this with regard to security issues, export controls, investment, foreign investment, other areas. Great. OK, super. And I can tell that I'm going to have to um I'm going to have to be really disciplined to get through all the other things I want to get through. So let me um, try to get Bill to do two things. One is to give your own takeaways from the simulations. You were in both simulations. And I think, again, especially after the first one when you played on the China team, um, uh, you, you came away with some interesting takeaways from that experience, such as things that you hadn't thought about uh, before. Be interested in those. And then if a second question, getting to this coalition building question, um, you know, your thoughts on that and whether, you know, that's something that in the real world, just skipping to the real world, you know, that we, um, we ought to be doing more of that, uh, you know, and in that light, you know, can that be applied in the area of WTO reform, which you've just written um, eloquently yeah. about? And so, you know, how does that WTO reform story fit into this? Well, in the first one, I, I did want to be on the Chinese team. I, I had played these games twice with other organizations in the past on the American team, and I was tired of losing. <laughs> so I, I wanted to be on the Chinese team to, to have a crack at winning. Uh, I would argue that we did. But both, both sides <laughs> declared victory, by the way. Uh. Yes, but we were right. We were right. Uh, <laughs> the, Scott and, and Claire and I were all on that, uh, on that team. But it, it was an enlightening uh, exercise, I think, in, in some respects. As Matt suggested in the beginning, it was a kind of a stripped-down version because we were limited by, by time and, and, and resources. But in many respects, it was remarkably realistic. And, and both of them finished in a way that I think uh, uh, reflects sort of where we are now in reality, which is we didn't reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. And in the process, I think uh, the players on both sides learned how, how difficult it might be. I'd begin by echoing one of Scott's comments. It's really important uh, to figure out what you want, uh, which I think has not always been clear. Uh, and it's really important to figure out what the other side wants to the best that you can. The best you can. Uh, in the case of the first game, I think on the Chinese side, uh, we figured out early that uh, our goal was uh, to surrender as little as possible. You know, the Chinese goal in, in the game was not necessarily to make an agreement. Uh, it was to escape with as little damage as possible. Uh, and so that then led to a conversation about uh, what can the Americans really do that would hurt us? And the answer, which kind of intrigued me, but I think was the right answer, was not very much. Uh, and uh, 15 years ago, the answer might have been different. Uh, but at this stage in the scenario, which was 2025, the answer was there really wasn't much they could do. So uh, our role was primarily uh, defensive. How do we avoid uh, an explosion and how do we avoid uh, making any concessions? Uh, I think the American side uh, 
had the challenge uh, of figuring out exactly what it was they were trying to accomplish. You can see that in the present day situation. It's, it's never been clear, to me at least, whether the president wants a giant package of, you know, of goodies, three million bags of soybeans and some other things, or whether he really wants to address the structural issues that the game really revolved around uh, as much as anything. Um, he appears to say, I want both. Um, the Chinese message has more or less been, you can't have both. Uh, and that's sort of where things, uh, where, where things sit today. Uh, and I, you know, we ended up in both cases at, at, at kind of an impasse because we couldn't get uh, beyond that point. The, the Chinese were not prepared, uh, the Chinese team was really not prepared to play the game in the sense that they didn't want to negotiate in any meaningful fashion. Uh, and the Americans spent their time trying to figure out what can we do to make them negotiate. Uh, and the answer was uh, effectively nothing. Now, the second time around, the, the American approach was a little bit different. I think we concluded very early, uh, based in part on the results of the first game, that the Chinese were not going to do what we wanted. Uh, and so therefore, uh, the negotiation in a way was, was kind of fake. Uh, in the sense that there was not an expectation on the American team that we were going to get anything meaningful out of the Chinese. So a lot of the discussion revolved around what do we do instead? And I think this is going to be, uh, at, a, you know, at an earlier event today, Scott was uh, talking about, you know, well, plan A was, you know, in the last 15 years and that didn't work very well. So plan B is tariffs and that's probably not working well. So it's time for plan C. And uh, I think plan C is going to end up being about where we ended up in the game, which was, uh, what do we do for ourselves? This is where I get to use the race metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I've said running, in other speeches. Yeah, which running. I've said in other speeches. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, if, you're in, if you're running a race, uh, you know, there's only two ways to win. You, you run faster than the other guy, or you trip the other guy. And uh, the negotiation is all about tripping the other guy, putting constraints on him so that he can't run as fast as you do. Uh, what I think the American team decided the second time around was really to, let's focus on running faster. What can we do to make the United States a more effective competitor uh, against the areas that are China's points of strength? And we spent a lot of time trying to, uh, trying to do that doesn't mean we abandoned the other objectives, but it meant that you know, we, we began to focus on what we thought was, was important. At the same time, that does not lead to an agreement. Uh, that leads to a change of policy. But uh, in the, the process of getting to the change of policy uh, was useful, and I think the fact that you were in, you know, engaged with a, a, you know, the other side that didn't want to give you anything that you wanted uh, you know, facilitated that. So the second issue was... Well, just uh, about the, the coalition building and oh. allied cooperation and you know, yeah, what, how that what's, applies. What struck me was, was both sides really decided that that was important um, in a little bit different ways. But, and in the, in the second game, the Chinese made clear at, at, at when we had the you know, uh, backwash at the end that the only thing the Americans did that really worried with them was when we attempted to put together what was... I forget, it had some fancy name. Basically, it was a coalition of rule of law countries that we were going to get everybody together that was a market economy that believed in rule of law to sort of gang up on China. Uh, and they said that was the only thing that, that, that really worried them. 
And they made a concerted attempt both times to prevent that by developing allies of their own. And this was the one element of the game that I thought was in stark contrast to at least what the Americans are doing presently. We've really made no effort to do that. And uh, there's a reason why, actually, which gets to Matt's question. Uh, we've, uh, I was involved in a conversation about that with, with, at one point with somebody at USTR uh, where the, where, who was being asked, why, so why don't you do that? And the answer was, well, you have to th think about it. Um, Sounds like a great idea, but uh, who would we do it with? And who was in the same place? And uh, this, uh, I was at a, a dinner last night with some people from the EU where exactly this issue came up. The EU has diagnosed the problem the same way. They have the same set of issues with China, but their approach to the problem is firmly within, inside the WTO box. They don't want to color outside the lines. They want to solve the problem through WTO procedures, through WTO litigation, through following the rules. Here we have an administration that says the rules don't fit China, and so you need to fit, you need to think outside the box. And you know, the point of the conversation we had with USTR is when you've got a fundamental disagreement about how you should how you approach the problem, it's very difficult to have a coalition. You know, the Europeans have been clear they're not going to agree to things that violate WTO rules. And the U.S. is more or less saying, we don't care about those. Let's think about something that's effective. And so uh, the coalition sounds like a good idea, but it's not clear that there are actually partners willing you know, to get together on a common course of action. Right. Okay. Well, lots to uh, explore there. But I want to bring Stephanie in because, again, your takeaways and how this applies in the real world on this issue of coalition building, on how the U.S. government approaches uh, you know, this economic conflict with China. So my, my biggest takeaway is one that everyone else has actually mentioned, and it's around kind of the coalition building and the importance of third countries in this conflict, which is something that has kind of been said ad nauseum and is kind of an obvious point. But the thing that was really striking in the simulations was how quickly each team went to third countries. And the the important thing, I guess, is um, Bill just said that it is something that China is pressured by, this notion that there's coalition building that targets Chinese policies. What's disconcerting is that the United States doesn't necessarily see a similar sort of pressure. Um, and we saw it play out in the simulation, but I think we're also seeing it play out in real life, um, and that this is very much not simply just a bilateral struggle, but it is a struggle to try and kind of co-opt uh, countries for, for each of the two sides. So that is something that was very clear from the get-go in the game. The second round when I played and I was in the control room, we were in the position of having each side come to us and say, you know, the United States has just uh, said that Korea is joining with them on issue X, and the control room then had the ability to say, well, that's reasonable or that's not reasonable, and you can make that ask or you're not going to be able to get through with that ask. That kind of gets to the point of maybe why it's so tough to build some of these coalitions, maybe from the U.S. perspective, and that is 
because the United States in some ways is kind of isolated from the fallout from the trade war. I mean, we, China is a big and important trading partner, but we are a very inward focused economy. We are consumption driven and trade is actually a relatively small amount of our GDP in comparison with a number of our allies that are much more highly trade dependent including dependent on trade with China. And so I think that calculus on the part of third countries is something that the United States also needs to, to keep in mind. So again, an obvious point, but one that really played out in the simulation. The other big takeaway that I had, and I think it gets to a number of the conclusions that you mentioned, including the kind of dual credibility and that is um, what I observe to be um, the presence of what I'm calling bureaucratic intransigence in the game, which is you can have, um, and we actually had this in one of the rounds, the leaders have instructed their lead negotiators to meet and to come to some agreement. So that instruction went out, but then once the negotiators came back to the negotiating table and started you know, kind of horse trading, that's when stalemate resulted. And it was evident in the game, and I think it's something else that I think that was clear in the first round, kind of prior to some subsequent interactions, including in June, but we've actually seen that play out in real life. So I think this idea of uh, the, the teams needing to have kind of a unified vision of what is it that they're trying to achieve and making sure that the negotiators are in line with leadership and getting that done is something that played out in the game. And I think um, one could maybe suggest that that's kind of playing out in real life as well. Great. I should have said uh, early that we only had Americans in the two simulations. We did not have any Chinese um, nationals playing in the game. But, uh, but, the, but everybody was, I think, doing their honest best to, to project you know, what they, their long experience. So for example, Dave Rank was in one of these things. I mean, he was the last DCM in, in China, spent a long time there. Um, uh, Susan Lawrence, Amy Selico, a um, bunch of people who spent a lot of time in China. And they were really, I think, honestly trying to project you know, the Chinese perspective, not American preferences in the game. So I, it, wasn't, it was a limitation we acknowledge in the report, but we, we, uh, we tried to, to give an honest um, sort of back and forth. Okay, there's- Claire did a great impression. And Claire was thought. great, I told you, she was yes. fantastic. And um, Sharon Wan played, uh, she was on the American side, but she played uh, the Treasury Secretary or Premier. She was ultimately- We were at a high level. With Prime Minister dialogues. or something, yes. she be, declared herself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but seriously, okay, I mean, there's a lot else to cover and it, it looks like the audience is gonna have to ask more about the real world, but, but let me ask one sort of thing that bridges our simulation and with the I, real can world. Can I just do yeah. one more thing on coalition? Sure. Okay, so one of the things that I think we should focus on is the possibility, given that the United States is basically ripping up WTO rules with regard to the exact negotiation that we're in the middle of. So it's not surprising that they're not going to get these allies right, in addition to the differences in trade dependence. But for me, given that this issue is broader than actually the trade space, is to look harder at what kinds of coalitions the United States is trying to build or could build in other areas that matter for our economic future. So the issues surrounding you know, investment in national security, and I think some of that's ongoing. The, the, the initiatives regarding Huawei, which arguably may have gone too 
a, a very aggressive push with potentially not sufficient information. But, but just thinking, and even things like TPP, I mean, the little Jap Japan trade deal that came today had pieces of TPP in it. So looking, looking again, outside the lines of the, of the exact negotiation. Okay, right good. Let me just ask uh, just a round of everybody uh, on, on the question of decoupling. Again, less, less focused on our finding or on what you saw in the negotiation, just more let's take it to the real world and then I'll let the audience come in and ask more about the real world if you want. Um, happy if you want to ask about the games, that's fine. Um, but, um, you know, either way, Scott, maybe why don't you bring, bring you back in. I mean, what, what does decoupling mean? Um, and and what is it? What is it? Where is it happening? Where is it not likely to happen? And what's the? What are the implications of decoupling? You know, good, bad, or ugly? Okay, small question now yeah. for me. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, decoupling I means deinterdependence. Um, it means having our economies, whether directly or indirectly, connected to each other. Uh, have those, pull those apart. Um, either uh, go back to autarky and deglobalize fully or create um, a world beyond the U.S. that our economy is connected to, which in which China doesn't touch it, either on the supply side or on the demand side. Um, that's a big ask or a big, ex a, a, a huge change, e even though uh, Stephanie is right, a small percentage of American economies based on trade and only a portion of that on China. Nevertheless, uh, it doesn't show up in necessarily the total GDP numbers, but we're pretty interdependent, at least on the real economy side, if not on the finance side. Um, you know, I, I th do think it's important that there's some areas where we, we aren't connected yet, uh, information, right? So China's got a great firewall, so we're not super connected there. I think there's some places where, uh, and we'll see, uh, you know, it doesn't look like a Xi Jinping-led China or a Communist Party-led China is going to change that. So we may never be connected on information uh, the way you'd want to be. Uh, the biggest change is, uh, which is the sort of the re, the movement of supply chains. That's the biggest shift. And the, ins the uncertainty from the tariffs and the trade war, I think, is basically accelerated uh, activity that was already underway. Uh, and so um, I was just in China a few weeks ago and heard a lot about folks going to Vietnam. I mean, the hotel business and airline business for, for Vietnam must be just booming, even if folks don't build factories there at the end of the day. Same with Thailand. Uh, so you're seeing that just uh, for being accelerated as a result. But um, the third source is, is sort of the political push to separate us ourselves technologically. Um, and you know, you're seeing some emphasis, you know, some movements on export controls and investment restrictions. I, I still think we're in a phase where we could have three different outcomes going ahead. Maybe we'll end up in a space where the negotiation, where the Chinese will cry uncle. They'll say, we embrace marketization and we'll reconnect. Uh, not the way it's been, but we'll reconnect in, in a way that uh, reflects comparative advantage and all the other types of things that economists know about. I think more likely uh, is, is that we're going to sort of have a real, we'll, we'll find some stability. Maybe it will be through an interim deal or something else, but we'll, 
find some way to settle the relationship where we still have connections, but they're not as extensive as they are now. Um, but we'll, it will have we'll basically be relatively stable. Of course, it's quite possible that we'll have the third outcome, which is a continued uh, breaking of the relationship, a spiral, and where we end up either in two camps or even far more fragmented. Uh, you know, I still think we're most likely to end up somewhere in that middle category, some type of stable level of, of uh, relationship with China where we're probably, it's a mix of rivalry and competition, but we've got some relatively clear boundaries about what those two parts are like. Great, excellent. Stephanie? So, so I should clarify what I said before. It's not so much that the U.S. that we're not kind of interdependent and linked, but I think our pain threshold is yes. higher because of our, our lower relative, lower dependence. But I, I think on the question of, of decoupling, I, I think that one takeaway that is already there and kind of baked in the cake right now is um, each side will resist sole dependence on the other. And so kind of the key case or the most um, illustrative case is the Huawei example in China recognizing its vulnerability to being dependent on a sole US supplier. And so the response to that being domestic sources and or diversifying away from just a single US supplier. You've actually seen a similar policy announced in the United States, right, where we are more aware now of our dependence on China for certain things like um, advanced uh, uh, minerals, um, rare, rare earth minerals. So I think both sides are going to be responding by making sure that they don't have a sole dependence on the other. And this is maybe the optimistic way to view um, the outcome of decoupling. Because in that instance, I, I think the, the conventional wisdom about decoupling is that it will be inefficient, which is true, right? Um, you're going to have certain redundancies in the system that are going to be inefficient, and therefore overall welfare is going to decline. That's true. But I think one of the byproducts of a response to decoupling, which is diversifying, is that you're going to be having increased investment in certain areas. You're going to be making sure that either your domestic uh, industry or industries of uh, friendly countries are strong enough and supported, and you're going to be making those investments. So you could, in some respects, see an investment boom to lessen your dependency on the other. And so that's kind of the optimistic um, outcome of decoupling. And it, that doesn't actually sound too crazy to me. I think we could see actually enhanced investment in certain areas that actually are supportive of our own growth. OK, good. Bill, do you have thoughts? Um, I don't have a lot to add. I've always been uh, intrigued by the, the difficulty of separating cause and effect on, on decoupling. Uh, you can say the tariffs uh, and the uncertainty that they create contributes to it, but there are always larger macroeconomic factors at stake here. You've got rising uh, Chinese uh, wage rates. You've got economic slowdown in China. Uh, you've got uh, a variety of other reasons. Uh, the way the Chinese government treats foreigners operating, uh, doing business there. A variety of other reasons for companies to consider uh, restructuring, particularly restructuring their supply chains. Uh, 
that make it hard to say, you know, this particular policy or, you know, what, what the negotiations that are going on are really contributing to that. I mean, the one thing you do know is that uncertainty uh, contributes to, uh, it makes everything worse for everybody. And I think the other thing that we are gradually coming to appreciate is first, it is all about supply chains because that's the kind of world that we live in now. I don't think our president understands supply chains, but uh, people who actually make things uh, understand them. And I think that we are still learning about the impact of regional free trade agreements um, on supply chains because that's really what regional free trade agreements are, are about. Because if you're inside the zone, whatever the countries are, in this case, in the Asian case, CPTPP is the best example. If you're one of those 11, you get tariff-free benefits within the zone. Uh, that creates an incentive to locate part of, enough of your supply chain inside the zone that you can qualify for tariff-free treatment. So uh, it's not uh, the, the, the decoupling issue is, it's not just about American companies leaving or not leaving China. It's about Chinese companies leaving China to go to Vietnam or to go to other members and other CPTP, CPTPP number, members so they can be inside the zone and take advantage of, of the tariff-free status. So there's a whole bunch of moving things going all, balls all in the air at the same time, might be a better metaphor, that makes it difficult to sort these things out. I'm inclined to think though uh, that for, uh, and, and uh, Stephanie alluded to this, that in the case of China, we have now this sort of security overlay uh, thanks to Huawei, there are, there is the, the widespread and I think growing belief that uh, Chinese products that, that have security implications are compromised and that it is not in our security interest to uh, include those in, in our economy or in our infrastructure. That does produce, you know, uh, less, uh, less optimal outcomes from an economic welfare standpoint, but it's a security issue. And I think we're going to see more of that, and it's a very difficult one to uh, to compromise. I mean, if you if you if the people that know about that sort of thing thinks think that is a security risk, that's a hard argument to refute. Okay, Claire, uh, same question, but just to add a twist. I mean, do do you, as a former negotiator of many of the same issues that are on the table now, um, do you think that the the Trump administration is deliberately trying to promote decoupling in their negotiation, or it feels like in some ways if China did half the things we were asking them to do, it would actually increase our interdependence, um, or do you see them trying to promote you know, this beyond the Huawei example, which is a clear you know, Boy, uh, I think it's extremely difficult to have an understanding of what is going on and you know being on the outside it's very hard to assess i think the one thing we know is that trump is at the top and finally making the ultimate decision so there seem to be waves of views coming from both sides um, that is to say the people who point out the fact that we exist inside an international uh, financial and trading system that we're in for we're not going to be getting out of. And then those who are very focused on the national security side. And so my sense so far with, with President Trump continuing to talk about making a deal is that 
you know, he's a businessman, so pragmatism may be something that is at a core of his, of his being somewhere on the business side. And you know, something that hasn't come out directly that everybody on this panel knows well as everyone else does as, as well is, you know, China is a market of 1.4 billion people. If you're talking about multinational corporations, large corporations that are operating inside the United States, they are not going to throw that market away. They're not. So in terms of decoupling, there, it depends on what you're talking about, but even the most um, hard-nosed national security hawks, if they would like to cleanse the entire US economy of ties to China, I think they're gonna kill it. They would kill the entire economy, and you would drive major innovators and corporations out. It, it, you, we, would, we would be in a very parlous state, is my view. So we have to then at the bottom line is that you're gonna balance the business realities of what's going on. And even little businesses now have really been able to survive in the United States by creating long-term relationships with a really good supplier in China that really knows how to do what's not being done in the United States and create that synergy. So we got the business realities on one side and we got the national security problems on the other. And it's gonna be, in my view, an uneasy truce that's gonna come up between those. And right now we're in the middle of it. The whole export control reg proposed regulations as to what's an emerging technology that actually needs to be controlled for national security purposes. So it's happening right now. And if you were, if you, if any of you were here this morning for Scott's presentation, which the, the, the Shanghai American Chamber of Commerce, one of the points uh, that their presenter made was the same one you made, that for American companies it's, it's foolish to give up the market, the Chinese market. It's simply too important a global element for them to abandon. And I saw that as a negotiator inside USTR. There would be very difficult problems that, that companies would have. But you had to be pragmatic in your business dealings as to how it was that you approached solving them. Right. Okay, lots more to explore here, but I want to bring the audience in because I'm sure you have some good questions as well. So if you want to ask a question, please uh, wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and then do ask a question. I'm going to take this person in the front row and then Mike Mosateg after that. So these two, and then I'll go over there. So the front row, please. The front row, right here. Yeah, this lady here. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ann Vroom. This is very interesting. And I was at the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai this morning as well. And I'm just wondering, however, we talked about all the business incentives there are to promote trade activity between the two mega economies. Uh, but one thing that never came up this, this morning was Hong Kong, where you have human rights issues. Um, and where does a, an American company draw the line? Where does the American government cross the line? And aren't economic uh, disincentives to human rights violations uh, preferable to possibly kinetic kind of uh, interventions. In other words, everyone this morning, for example, and that was the American Chamber of Commerce, were all anti-tariff and very pro-China uh, in the respect that they wanted to bend over backwards to accommodate Living in, China, living in the Chinese environment as a business. However, aren't there still American values that 
even an American business has to uh, consider on a larger basis than just promoting business exchange. Okay. Uh, somebody want to take on that question of sort of use? Yeah, of I, well, I've been State I've been craft. taking that question on for thirty years, um, because it's it, it's the same. Well, yeah, you won't like the answer. Uh, it's the sanctions question, and the, the way I approach it analytically is um, again figure out what we want to accomplish, and then figure out what you can do that will accomplish the goal. There's a lot of things you can do that you're talking about that will make you feel better. Uh, the question is, will they make the situation on the, on the ground in Hong Kong any better? Will they address the problem that you're trying to address in Hong Kong? Um, we used to go up to the Hill uh, when I was, I represented a trade association of large companies that tended to oppose the kind of thing you're talking about. And we would be talking to, to Hill staff about sanctions on, you know, name your country. Uh, at the moment, and in fact, your question is timely because both the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today are voting on Hong Kong legislation uh, to address uh, the issues that you're you're talking about. Uh, they don't go, I think, as far as you're implying we, we should consider, but they're addressing the problem. We go up to the Hill and say, "Why are you doing this? It won't work." Uh, and the answer, is, meaning it won't accomplish your objective, and the answer was, "Well, we have to do something." You know, we have to demonstrate that we don't approve of what they're doing. And my response was always, well, okay, but you don't have to do something stupid. You can do something smart. Because in the process of separating ourselves from the economy or sanctioning the economy, if you do it alone, if you do it unilaterally, and this gets back to the coalition issue, you don't achieve your objective because other people step in and fill the gap and do the things that you have decided to prohibit yourself from doing. Uh, and you don't change the other, so you don't change the other country's policy, um, and you deprive your guys of the market, and you deprive your guys of the influence that they have in that marketplace. So, my answer to the question is that, that uh, you know, don't think about what will make you feel good. Think about what would actually have a chance of succeeding, and will change the situation on the ground in Hong Kong. And if the answer to that is taking some measure that would that would be a sanction, for lack of a better term, fine. But I think you have to go through a fairly rigorous analytical process to get there. Okay, Scott, do you want to add something? Um, just to piggyback on, on what Bill's saying, and, and since I hosted the event this morning, I encourage everyone to watch it again uh, <laughs> later on uh, and send, send the link to your friends and aunts and uncles and everything <laughs> as well. Um, shameless, you're shameless, Scott. Mm -hmm. Hey, why not? Um, the, I, I, I don't think that they would interpret what they were saying as being pro-China. I think, again, it's partly about being effective and, and partly <coughs> effective in terms of trying to gradually nudge China's system in a more market-oriented direction that, address, that, that develops rule of law and things like that. And, and so more of a disagreement over means as opposed to ends. I, I, I think one of the you know, goals in the trade war uh, was to understand that, that these changes that the U.S. wanted that they hadn't gotten for a long time, uh, they wouldn't be patient and just wait forever. And so to raise these obvious costs to the Chinese um, and to try and nudge this in a, uh, more quickly. But, uh, you know, I think the Chinese interpretation of that, and we haven't talked a lot about how the Chinese have perceived things, 
is that the U.S. isn't just simply asking the US, China to change how it manages the economy, or, uh, but that the U.S. has concerns about China being economically successful in the first place, which I don't think is what the U.S. goal is, but that's how it's interpreted. Um, and <coughs> as a result of, and I think that's partly why the Chinese have stood so firm, uh, because they think that what the U.S. is doing is saying, what we're saying is that your system fundamentally is wrong and the rule of the party is unacceptable. Uh, and I don't, but, and, and as a result, I think that's made them even more hostile to the global conversation about Hong Kong. Uh, because they see that as part and parcel of a broader systematic, systemat, systemic conflict with them. Uh, not to say that uh, we should definitely just start over back to plan A, uh, but uh, plan B hasn't been working very, very well either. I would say, you know, right now, I think the chances of Chinese using force in Hong Kong is pretty low. Uh, I'm not happy with the direction that it's going in, uh, but we still have a chance uh, to get a less than horrible outcome there. Okay, uh, Mike, the gentleman in the third row right here on the end. Uh, Mike Masetic, PBS Online NewsHour. What is the role of predictability, or more important, unpredictability in game theory? And the reason I ask is because just the other day I got briefed by somebody who's quite familiar with what the top Chinese are doing here. And they thought they had a pipeline into the president's thinking via a certain senior advisor who happens to be a member of the family. And that's turned out to be bust. That particular advisor has no better fix on what happens next than, than anybody else. And so they're sort of throwing up their hands in despair. Yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think President Trump doesn't know what he's going to do, you know, tomorrow or even in an hour. And so, so I think it's very hard even for a close family member to really predict. And, you know, Scott, you did address this point, but Stephanie, you want to jump in first and then Scott, you can come in. Yeah, I, the, um, there was a lot of discussion initially about this kind of constructive ambiguity if the U.S. weren't in a better position because nobody was quite sure what the objective was and what the strategy might be and that somehow conveyed an advantage to the United States. I think that may have been the case early on. I think if that were even an advantage initially, it has now kind of flipped and I think it's potentially a disadvantage now and it goes back to the trust point that Matt made initially about the kind of main conclusions. I think it has gone on long enough to the point where the Chinese side doesn't necessarily believe or trust in what the objectives of the United States are and that that actually lessens the probability of reaching uh, an agreement and an outcome. So I, I think that ambiguity has been there and has been kind of part of the dynamic that may have been an advantage initially, but is now kind of flipped to a disadvantage for the U.S. Did you want to add anything, Scott? And Just very briefly, um, I think there's multiple layers of ambiguity and uncertainty, not just with what we want now um, or, and what would be acceptable for us, but um, let's say we did make a deal uh, and we've identified what an agreement might look like, would we change our mind the next day? And, and so that's what the report, dis, you know, that's part of the report's discussion of dual credibility. And you hear that when you go to China uh, or talk to Chinese who are visiting, that they're not sure that even if we uh, reach a deal today that it will stick tomorrow. Uh, and so 
Um, and I think you'd find the same ambiguity with that advisor uh, who's been uh, you know, trying to analyze what's going to happen with inside their own office. Okay. Um, there's a gentleman back there, Hugh, uh, right there, and then. Hi, my name is Julian Mulakala. I'm with the Atlantic Council. I actually have two quick questions. My first one is, has the United States underestimated China's economic power in terms of given the decoupling efforts in European countries' economic interest actually lies with China. I'm thinking about my own country, Germany, who has big manufacturing uh, with regards to automobiles, and most of them actually make their profits in China. So I don't think in a decoupling scenario they would choose the United States from an economic perspective. And my second question is with regards to the, um, to the game you played. Have you taken into consideration the bipartisan compromise uh, in the United States on being harsh in China because one could think of a scenario where Trump wants to polish his credentials as a deal maker and shortly before the election announces a deal with China but given the Democratic um, opponent, like his op potential opponents and his uh, or her stance on China which is equally critical. Okay, I think Bill maybe has an answer to that one. Uh, does anybody want to talk about maybe um, Scott again? We were there um, together a couple weeks ago in China, and I would you know confirm that this is not an economy on the brink of collapse, and uh, we're probably uh, deluding ourselves if we think that they're about to you know buckle because of the pressure. On the other hand, there's definitely uncertainty, and growth is slowing. There's concern about the financial strains. I mean, so there there are, and the tariffs are not helping uh, economic management. Um, but we were there, the reason I'm highlighting this is we were there when Angela Merkel was there um, with a big German trade delegation um, and, uh, and it was very pointed that you know, Germany has a different approach um, and I think that does give China some additional you know, maybe leverage or flexibility at least. Uh, Scott, do you want to add? Just a, just a small point. I mean, I, I think that one of the administration's operating logics uh, is that access to the American market is so important that they could use that against, successfully against the Chinese or anybody else. And of course, there are other options. But I think another m missing element of this, uh, I don't think it's discussed a lot in the report, uh, but is timing, right? Because economies aren't just dependent over a long period of time. They also have business cycles. And certainly, um, early this year, and very end of last year, China's economy uh, was in a trough now. It wasn't because of the trade wars for a variety of different reasons, but the U.S. didn't take advantage of that, right? Uh, negotiations got started in January and February, and then the president pushed back the, the deadline. I think an uh, interesting uh, question, counterfactual will be some down the, somewhere down the road will be, let's say the U.S. hadn't pushed back that deadline. Would China have felt enough economic anxiety then, regardless of whether it was caused by the U.S. or not, to have made substantial concessions right then so they could have gotten a deal right then, uh, and that the change in the business climate just cyclically uh, affected things, irrespective of sort of China's structural dependence on the U.S. But I, but yeah, I, I think the question also was asking, was there sufficient awareness of the fact that the EU would have a differing interest, given the differing of trade relationships. And I guess I would say that it's been a long-standing issue as to the fact, it's like there's this obvious fact, right? If you put the US and the EU together as an, as an economic you know, group, 
it's a very substantial one where you would presumably have more leverage with China. And given that there are very important overlaps in rule of law and you know, the, the, the liberal economies, it seems to make all the sense in the world. And you would just say, well, that's a no-brainer. Let's do that and then face China. But we are constantly finding the differences between our two sets of economies and, and groups of regimes. And China, I think, is quite pleased with that, given the points that have been made about China disliking being isolated and, and having the sense that a whole group of very important economies in the world are criticizing them. So that dynamic is very important and I think more complicated than it, it, than it seems to be on the surface. Yeah. And obviously, as you know, European views have changed over the last two or three years. I mean, I think there's more realism about the, the, the risks and challenges of, of China, uh, particularly investment into Europe, I think has raised uh, some, some uh, new concerns. And, you know, as you know, Stephanie's been doing a lot of work on this, uh, you know, Europe has put into place a new investment screening mechanism, a sort of light version of our CFIUS regime. And, and the, the, the German industry group, BDI, has written a very uh, thoughtful and pretty, pretty edgy report about China as a sort of systemic competitor. And, uh, um, and then our friend Jörg Wittke of, of BASF, a German entrepreneur, a very brave guy who's got a good business over there but is, is willing to call China on some of the stuff it's doing. I mean, so there, there's a prospect, I think, there's a, a shared recognition diagnosis of the problem, and I think that is a, a basis for, you know, for some joint work, but we're a long way from working seamlessly uh, But I also together. think this goes to the woman's question in the front row. Um, you hear some talk kind of increasingly about, granted, there are economic tensions between the U.S. and Europe that seem to be preventing closer alliance when it comes to dealing with some of the challenges of China. But I think if you elevate the discussion to something that is a bit more kind of values-based, um, rule of law, um, uh, democratic <laughs> values, I think that's where you kind of have the strongest lines. There's been, it feels like there's been a bit of a reluctance to kind of go there and say, well, on that very high level, there is grounds for working together, working collaboratively, recognizing that there are these tensions in the relationship, but this is actually the priority. And what you've seen on issues related to national security, that seems to kind of make the case. I don't think we've gotten there yet on trade issues, but you could see that we might be getting there. And, and to not get too long-winded about it, some of the trade issues that are related to kind of data and privacy and yeah. how not having common standards um, are a threat, not just to economic relations, but some of these more principles-based um, concerns. I think ultimately that is the argument that's going to have the most traction and is going to be the most durable. And footnote on the WTO work that Japan, the Europeans, and the U.S. The trilateral are trying to do on the, right. U.S., Japan, EU um, work on, on, WTO. on WTO reform and subsidies and other things. Bill, did you want to try the other question? What was or if it? you remember, can you just repeat quickly the What was the second the question? question? Which was a Trump deal and the Democrats. 
let, let him have the microphone because they can't hear online if he doesn't. Okay, I'm sorry. So the second question was just whether Trump has maneuvered himself into a corner because he cannot just accept any deal given bipartisan compromise. Yeah, short on version. Being harsh in China. Elevator version of your oh, thing yeah. this morning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's in an awkward, he's in a difficult he's position. He can't get the deal he wants, so he has to either accept an inadequate deal, in which case he'll be accused of being soft on China and a poor negotiator, or he has to continue the war, in which case he'll be accused of a failed policy that caused a lot of collateral damage and didn't, uh, you know, didn't accomplish anything. In that situation, though, I think it's clear what he'll do. He takes the deal, says it's the greatest deal ever, declares victory, and then tries to sell it to the American people. And the, the trick is, this goes back to uh, Scott's phrase, timing. Do it now, it's too soon. It has a year to fall apart. Do it in October of 2020, and people will vote before they know it's a lie. <laughs> or it won't work. But, but you may have economic repercussions between now and October that actually well, create more serious the, macro problems. The, the, the so you've got another the, one. You know, the challenge another is to keep it all afloat for the next year, which is why I would not be surprised to see inter, some interim deal that would provide relief for the farmers because they'll buy a bunch of stuff. It gives Trump an excuse not to impose additional tariffs, which will make consumers happy, and it kicks the can for four or five Yeah, months. which is essentially what happened with Japan today in its own way. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, sorry to be so That's cynical. A cynical, cynical but, uh, Gentlemen there, gentlemen, way in, uh, sorry, the lady next to um, uh, him, and first the gentleman there, and then the lady next to him, and then there's a gentleman way in the back as a cluster quickly, and we'll be a couple minutes over, but... Uh, hi, Rick Newman with Yahoo Finance. Uh, since Trump is uh, essentially driving the trade war single-handedly, what happens uh, if Trump is no longer president, whether that's 2021 or sooner? Uh, can the genie go back in the bottle? Okay, good question. Ma'am. Uh, hi, thank you. Uh, this question is specifically for Mr. Scott Kennedy. I just wonder that you have mentioned uh, that, that you know, under three, like there's going to be three outcomes, and one of them was like China and the U.S. will find some certain stability or uh, the, where, where there's still connections but not as extensive. Can you just elaborate more of how that would look like? Thank you. Okay, and the gentleman way in the back. Thank you. And then we'll wrap it up with maybe starting with Scott and come down the line for whatever you want to answer. Okay. Well, along with what was just said, I wonder if Xinjiang might be a rule of law uh, based approach way out of it, uh, since you have uh, anyone enabling uh, mass surveillance police state uh, there uh, needing to decouple in particular, uh, lest they be sanctioned. And um, even you know for the, the pro products of forced labor, which is the cheapest input, uh, it, from Xinjiang, such as agriculture or cotton, which is almost entirely dependent on forced labor, coming into the U.S., that would be sort of an obvious way to, to be hard on China while uh, the president actually uh, caves. So there's a question there as to whether we should do that, uh, basically. Um, okay, any or all of that down the line? No, go for Scott, you had a specific question right. there. Um, let, let's, I'll first begin with an admission, but I, I've said this before, I've written it before. I was okay with the U.S. starting out with tariffs and, and trying to um, pick up the pace of negotiations. Uh, I honestly would have preferred this to have been done more as a coalition, not with the others 
raising tariffs but painting within the lines, as, you, as, as Bill said, showing more support for the U.S. and with the U.S. also not doing 232 and everything against others. Um, and, uh, but we didn't do that. Uh, and I think we've seen some of the outcomes as a result. We left a lot of leverage on the table. Um, what do I, how, how do we get to um, a more stable outcome that is uh, not back to the past, but uh, different from where we are right now? I mean, I, th I thought the negotiations uh, it, toward a big deal were, were essentially equivalent to um, the agreement that the U.S. and the Soviets signed in May of 1972, SALT I. It's the first serious arms control agreement between the two, which then ushered in a period of detente, peaceful coexistence, essentially, uh, over the latter part of the Cold War. Um, I think that's what I was looking for, that this deal was more than about the trade numbers and how much you give in this sector or that sector, but putting a floor underneath the relationship. Um, and I, I think um, if we could have done that, or, and we still could do that, then we will have expanded export controls, investment restrictions, people-to-people uh, -people contacts. But we will be able to clearly define w where the boundaries are between national security and commerce, uh, and uh, still uh, engage in the type of commerce which is definitely mutu mutually beneficial for each other and for the re rest of the world. Um, that would require both sides to see the other not as an existential threat. And right now, I think this administration views the Chinese uh, and their system as an existential challenge to the Western system and the liberal international order. So it's going to be really hard for them to accept something that is beyond an interim deal. And I think at the same time, the Chinese, led by Xi, uh, <coughs> also view what the U.S. is doing in those type of existential challenging terms. Uh, so uh, I think that's surprising, given that China is richer, healthier, safer than it's ever been. The reality is that they should have more confidence and be willing to reach some major kind of compromise. Um, and the U.S., we've got significant problems, especially inequality and things. But if we uh, were a little bit more self-confident and not driven only by fear, I think we could probably find uh, some common ground with them. Doesn't address all of our problems, but puts a floor under the relationship so that we can address other challenges that we face. Yeah. Just the question on kind of what happens post-Trump. Um, there's a, a point that a lot of folks have made in events like this that the um, appetite to be more assertive with China and to address some of these structural issues is bipartisan, and, and I think that's 100% true. I think the thing that would be different is the approach, the clarity of objective, perhaps, and maybe a greater willingness to approach things <coughs> with others and work multilaterally could be increased in a future. And, and maybe just to add, I agree with all of that and add maybe more um, process. We, one of our conclusions, and we didn't really talk about it here, um, all the, except indirectly through um, Stephanie's point about bureaucratic intransigence, is it's really important to have an organized sort of approach and, and, and all the players uh, in the same room with somebody in the White House um, driving that and keeping balance in the force. You know, there, there needs to be a balance between the Jedi and the dark side of the, of the, of the approach to China. 
and there is an imbalance in the force right now, in my opinion. And so I think we need somebody to provide greater balance. And so that's, uh, that to me is another just sort of process piece that I think will be different and, or should be in, in a, in a post-Trump world. But I agree with the point that this, the structural challenge here is going to remain and the, and the, you know, the, the aggressive, assertive approach is going to be, I think, quite similar if some of the tactics and tone are a little bit different. Care to so, comment on which Democratic candidate has the force with them? <laughs> no, wouldn't dare. <laughs> Nor I. I, I. I agree with Stephanie. I, the, there's a lot of agreement that the diagnosis of the problem is, is uh, uh, there's agreement on the diagnosis. There's not agreement on the prescription. Uh, a different president, I think, might pursue a different range of policies. One of the interesting things in the game, or in this, in this report you'll see, is there's a whole bunch of tools besides tariffs. And the president has a favorite tool. Uh, he's only got one tool. There's a lot of tools. And I think a different president would, would uh, I think, be a little more creative in their use of tools. Interestingly, the president, is it the first time, agreed to cut tariffs today on Japan, on industrial policy, unspecified? But may, maybe he did in USA. No, he did, spe well. he did specify okay, 42 items. Time. Right, 42 items, but okay. Anyway, um, so maybe he's, he's lost his love for tariffs. Um, it, well, we, <clears throat> don't think so. On, on the post Trump, I think no matter who it is, we're going to have to distinguish between what the politics are going to drive in terms of sort of rhetoric and position and what makes sense from a policy perspective. Um, I think from a policy perspective, there really is room to satisfy if you really are interested in coexisting with China in this world. Uh, there's a lot of things that China could do that are really good for themselves, that really are, that are not just lip service. Um, but then you've got the hawks on the, on the way on the side of national security with the United States that may say, well, why would we be trying to make China less, less inefficient in these areas where they are? Um, and then on Xinjiang, sure. which we have yes, not, please do. We have I was not ask. Um, discussed, is I, I think the idea of rule of law is, is an interesting and good one. I think we know, for better or for worse, that it seems to be part of a political um, calculus in the Trump administration, where Pence was, Vice President Pence was going to be speaking on those kinds of human rights issues and religious freedom issues, and then the speech was, was uh, postponed. And so the question that's really on the table is, will it be rolled out? And what will its, its what, what is its place in the, in the Trump uh, chessboard? Okay, sorry, one final benediction. Just, just two seconds on, on this. Um, I think it's worthwhile going through a thought experiment. Uh, if uh, there is a Democrat who is gonna enter the White House in January of 2021, uh, pick amongst them. Would they want there to be an interim deal or a big deal when they entered office, or would they prefer there to be the concurrent situation of gridlock? What uh, would they rather be bequeathed? Um, the relationship falling apart from which they might have some leverage to negotiate using their new tools that they'd want? Or would they want there to be relative stability and then they could change course? Um, I think it's an interesting thought experiment that some of them are going to need to potentially be going through. For our next simulation, we will <laughs> play that game uh, and see, see what it comes out. Um, this is terrific. I'm sorry to run over, um, again, lack of discipline, but, but really great panelists and terrific insights. I wish we had more time, but we'll continue the conversation. 
please read the report, play the game. Uh, it should be up on the site now, and, and it's fun, and we do actually seriously want to see uh, where you go with your uh, answers. It, it'll help us uh, advance our thought. Please join me in thanking the terrific panel.